There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way It's time for another Atomic Show. This is Rod Adams, and with me today is Matt Crozat, a representative of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Uh, welcome today, Matt. And I'd like you to uh, provide the audience with a little introduction about you and, and describe your background and a little bit about your current position at NEI. Well, sure thing. Thanks for having me, Rod. I appreciate that. So I'm Matt Crozat. I'm the Executive Director for Strategy and Policy Development here at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Uh, before coming to NEI in 2015, I was a senior policy advisor at the Department of Energy in the Office of Nuclear Energy uh, going back to 2006. Um, I was there with the start of the GNET program, the Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, and stayed through the formation of the small modular reactor program and a lot of other things along the way. Um, but when we started closing nuclear plants, I decided that perhaps uh, NEI was a better place from which to advocate for their the policies that would keep them in operation. And so uh, I've been here since uh, working on behalf of our members to create the policy environment that's going to allow nuclear plants to stay in operation and hopefully create the conditions to go build some new ones. Terrific. It seems to me that over the last several years, conditions have changed quite a bit uh, in terms of the politics surrounding maintaining existing nuclear plants. And, and NEI has probably contributed to some of those successes. Can you tell me what kind of efforts it, uh, were invested in uh, by NEI? Sure. I mean, if I go back to 2014, 2013 timeframe, we started closing plants, I think, kind of out of nowhere. Ones like Kewanee in uh, Wisconsin in particular caught our attention um, and realized that the economic marketplace in which these plants were operating in many cases were just not going to be conducive to continuing operation without having some kind of support from a policy perspective to value nuclear plants for what they were providing. There was not much interest in Washington to take this problem on at the time. Um, and so the efforts immediately went to state capitals and trying to create policy frameworks at the state level that would allow nuclear plants to be valued for their either carbon-free or their always-on attributes. And so in particular, places like New York, Illinois, New Jersey became the front lines of the conversations for where nuclear was going to be valued and what it was going to take to keep these plants in operation. And I think it's paid out to the benefit of everyone concerned when the states have acted. Interesting, your comment about it paying back. Uh, I know that in the battle over the, I can't remember the name of the act in Illinois, like Clean Power or Clean Energy Act, but the battle over that, there was a, a strong effort by the op opposition, uh, especially the American Petroleum Institute and organizations they supported, to label that program as a bailout for nuclear. Yeah. Yet I just read, read recently that Illinois ratepayers are getting uh, about a $240 per year benefit from having retained the nuclear plants. And they never actually have paid any extra because the structure of that bill was to essentially just provide a floor under which the plants would get paid some support if prices got too low. But prices have been high enough that nobody's ever 
paid any money to the to the nuclear plants. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how that happened and about what the what you as a as a a proponent of nuclear the the industry's representative what are you doing to tell everybody this is what happened? So let's start with with why it worked out that way. And you got it right that in all of these state programs there was always this recognition that look you could find yourself in a position where power prices wound up high again and this support wouldn't be needed. And so they all had a, a mechanism in there that says, well, look, as market prices increase, the value of the credit could decrease. And that's what we've seen, especially in the last, I'll say, 15 months um, has been very much the case. And so as a result, you know, the expectations for what it was going to cost to keep these plants in operation have been much lower because the overall price of natural gas and the power prices that go with it have increased considerably. Now, you know, there certainly were arguments along the way that you know, th- this was a bailout and, and the like. And what, what strikes me is that the, the opportunity at the state levels who really understand what these plants are providing, both in terms of the economic va- value to the rate payers who are buying electricity, but also the the jobs and employment in these communities, and especially for all of these plans that have states that had plans to reduce carbon emissions, it doesn't take a whole lot of back of the envelope math to realize that if you close your largest sources of carbon free power, you're not going to hit your ambitious goals. You bring those together, and you had a an ability to have a conversation. It didn't wasn't successful everywhere. We we've lost 13 reactors over the last 10 years, um, but it saved well more than that. And that's been an important part of the story of the, the opportunities that, that state action was able to actually solve problems and create a much better position for the the energy picture going forward. And it's not a surprise that we've seen a similar framework pick up now that Congress has taken an interest. And I think that the success that we had in being able to point to those state programs really gave a strong footing to reintroduce the conversation at the federal level and say, look, there's a way forward here that has worked, can work, and create a much more predictable long-term environment for these plants to meet these goals. And we've seen remarkable success in the last two years uh, on that front. Many people don't understand just how big an economic benefit it is to maintain those plants, not just for their clean energy output, but for their energy output in competition with other sources, because what drives the price of power and the price of natural gas is whether or not there is enough supply to meet demand. And anytime you reduce supply to the point where it's no longer meeting demand, the price has to go up to destroy some of the demand so that things balance out again. So just putting a floor under the the price and making sure that the nuclear plants were recognized as staying online has some impact on overall power prices and power availability. What kind of, uh, and that's, and then we're going to move on to another topic. What sure. kind of outlook does NEI see for new nuclear plants? You mentioned that you, that's part of the reason you went to NEI was to kind of establish the conditions for building new plants. No, you're right. And that same set of realization that started with the at-risk operating plants, those same factors have really begun to reshape how companies have looked at what new nuclear might mean for them going forward. So during the same time frame, we've seen something pretty remarkable happen, which is just about all of the companies that own nuclear plants and the utilities in the country in general have 
put forward commitments to be carbon free by mid-century or close to it. And what tends to happen is the CEO makes a statement that they're going to be carbon free mid-century. There's applause um, at the shareholder meeting. And then about six months later, we get a call from someone who's trying to do the modeling of how to have this system work. And they say, well, hey, can you, can you tell us about those advanced reactors again? Because all of a sudden, once it becomes the, the transition from a noble aspiration to how am I going to make this work where I can provide reliable power that's affordable and carbon free, that's a really daunting challenge. And you need tools that look like new nuclear reactors to be really make that system come together. And so we've seen this real transition towards as companies have been starting down this journey, the recognition that the attributes that new nuclear can provide are awfully well aligned to what it's going to take to make these systems work alongside a lot of wind, a lot of solar, a lot of batteries. This isn't a one or the other. This is a challenge of, I need a lot of all of it. And without something like nuclear, it gets really hard to make that system hang together. There are some people that make the statement, well, renewables can do 60, 70, 80%. And when we get to that point, we'll, we should go to nuclear. What's the real effective response to that kind of argument? Because I think since nuclear takes a while to build, the best time to start is like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that thinking of it as a system and understanding where you're trying to go is the, the, the hardest thing. That's People have a hard time with this. This is why we need a lot of times things like computer tools to help us understand these how these pieces fit together. But the idea that um, I'm going to wait for the, the hardest part until the end, well, that means I'm going to be stressing the system along the way. I'm going to be taking risks until I'm getting to that last 20%. And there's, there's no reason to wait to build this transition. I, I, there's no reason to uh, have this, um, this you know, debt that I'm building into the future that I need to pay off all at once by deploying a lot. Like, the most reliable way to think about deploying any technology, but especially nuclear, is to think about it in terms of a consistent program, being able to do one after the other without trying to do you know, you're cramming for your finals um, kind of uh, approach. So, I mean, I think having a sustained program where you can you know, learn from what you've done in the past, incorporate improvements, and do that alongside what I'm building out for the other technologies is going to give you the much the most reliable strategy towards making a what is a very difficult transition, um, and so trying to, to make it harder on yourselves in the future is a pretty risky way to go about this. Yeah, the other uh, analogy I tell people: you can get a lot better fuel economy if you're going hot, straight, and normal on the <laughs> expressway than you can if you do stop and start driving. And of course, with the big industry like nuclear, we have proven that stopping and starting is a difficult thing to do. Uh, it, That's right. Very it, costly it, to start up an infrastructure that you've destroyed. No, I think it's exactly right. And we've also had the counterexamples of places where we've seen the, the programmatic successes, I think, more reliably. And I think in Asia in particular, where we haven't seen that start and stop in quite the same way. Japan has its own case. But before that, there was kind of a long program of steady build, Korea in the same way. And so I think an appreciation that um, you know, having a, a consistent approach, a way to build skills, to train people, to provide careers in doing this, as opposed to deciding I'm going to all of a sudden take a whole bunch of people, give them a new job for a couple of years and then stop. 
that's probably not the most efficient way to go about it. And we have the ability to think long term because we have these long term goals. And you're right. Nuclear is not something that is something that works best on short time horizons. You want to be able to think strategically about nuclear. Um, and so I think having that longer term perspective I think draws you back to the idea of saying we need to get going now so we can create this runway towards what that expansion needs to look like. And one of the things that's happened over the last, say, 10 years is a growing realization or growing recognition among members of both parties that nuclear is important. A bipartisan approach to something like nuclear is a much better way to to establish that effective, long-term, consistent uh, policy approach. Can you just talk a little bit about what kind of changes NEI may have seen over the last 10 years uh, with support from both sides of the political aisle. No, that's an important part of having a long-term strategy is you can't be tied to elections every two years, as we know. Um, And so being able to create an appreciation of how nuclear can help meet the goals for people with different perspectives, different priorities, has been a really important part of the conversation and the messaging. And it's not something that's happened overnight, and it's also not something that happened by accident. Um, Trying to have conversations with people who might not have seen nuclear as part of the solution set they wanted to to advance. I think that's been most obvious in the case of seeing how, especially on the Democratic side, the conversation has evolved in the last, I'd say, four years in particular, where um, I think you had a traditional part of that caucus that had anti-nuclear as part of their identity and their activation into the political sphere. Uh, As we saw, I think, more and more dire warnings coming out from the IPCC and other groups about the how far off the, the trajectory we were for meeting our 2% goals for climate change. I think that forced a reset and a pause that, um, wait a second, if climate change is the biggest problem that we're facing, why is it that I'm trying to do that without nuclear? How am I having that be the thing that's holding me up? And not everyone got there at the same time the same way. But you combine that with new technologies, advanced reactors, that were able to sort of begin to be part of the conversation of, well, let's not talk about the technologies of the 70s and the anti-nuclear conversations of two generations ago. Let's focus on what these new technologies look like and why they're valuable. And once you began to see how that was part of a solution, it became easier to see, well, there's not that much difference between making fission in a new reactor than one that's currently running now. And I think that ability to sort of use the opening that new technology has provided to be able to reframe the understanding of how nuclear fit as part of this broader push on climate change, combined with a longstanding support for the nuclear from the, the other side of the aisle. And you know, the, the GOP has been more consistent uh, over a longer period of time of what nuclear means, especially from an energy security perspective and national security. And so we had this opportunity where I didn't need each side of the aisle to adopt the other one's priorities. They could see a role for nuclear from their own frame of reference and their own priorities. And that really did create an opening that we really saw come to a ahead in the last uh, you know, three months with the Inflation Reduction Act and prior to that, even the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
And of course, before that, there was a nuclear, the NEMA, NICA, yes. of some number of other, I think there's a total of six bills in the last three or four years that have really kind of moved the needle and, and shown how much support nuclear is getting in the Congress. Because I think with the exception of the Inflation Reduction Act, all of those were passed with bipartisan support, in some cases overwhelming bipartisan support. And for those people that have always thought that the Democrats were the anti-nuclear party, the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act should uh, change that feeling because it's definitely supportive of of new nuclear. There's an awful lot of good provisions in that bill, particularly putting uh, all clean energy sources on an equal footing. I have been saying that you know, when I look at the Inflation Reduction Act, I think this is the most significant set of policies to advance the use of nuclear energy in the United States since the 1950s. I have to go back to the Price-Anderson Act to find anything that has been dr- as dramatic as an opportunity as what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. And you're exactly right. The, the key reason is just what you said, that we're seeing now after a decade of making the argument that nuclear should be on a level playing field. I can't tell you how many times I've used that, that analogy over the years. Well, that's what, what happened. Um, the idea that essentially you now, for new nuclear projects, you have the option of taking what was essentially a bulked up version of the wind production tax credit or a bulked up version of the solar investment tax credit, and you get to choose. This is a remarkable way to reframe what's up, what the opportunity is here. And um, you know, one of the challenges I've had is trying to convince people that it really does say that, that that say, you know, in the nuclear world, we've been playing defense for so long. The idea that we're actually in a position now to be treated on, on uh, an equitable basis in, in policy space is really hard to get your head around. And so you know, a lot of it is trying to get the message out there, have people begin to think about what it means if, say, the federal government's willing to provide a essentially a rebate uh, for a new nuclear project of up to 30%, 40%, 50% when it goes into service. That's amazing. The idea that you could be looking at a production credit that could be worth roughly twice as much as what Vogel will be in line to receive when it goes online next year, that's amazing. And, and that's just part of it too. And so to your point, you know, we're at this moment now where the, the bipartisan support for nuclear has created an opportunity that we've long dreamed of. Uh, I've modeled it many times over in spreadsheets and other models, but to actually sort of see this now as part of the actual law of the land is a remarkable moment and a remarkable opportunity. You bring up a point that now gives me an opportunity to, to launch into one of my favorite questions for those who are members of the nuclear establishment. Over the last several years, I've heard many people say Vogel shows that big reactors are dead in the United States. We're never going to build another one because the experience had not been all that great. And, of course, VC summer was even worse because it didn't get completed. Mm-hmm. However, times change. Yep. The economic uh, position of nuclear compared to its uh, competitors is different now, completely different in terms of with with the production tax credit at the ITC than it was just a year ago. And of course, the price of natural gas and other competitive energy sources is not the same as it was. So there are at least four units that have a completed construction operating license, COL, or combined operating license. And so they have a site, 
they have a license, and there's a, finally a completed detailed design available now that the AP-1000 has actually loaded fuel at Vogel. That was one of the biggest Vogel challenges was they started with about a 30% complete design. Will anybody look at their spreadsheets again and say, you know, it now pencils out. Let's start building another couple of AP-1000s at at uh, W.S. Lee and uh, at Turkey Point. Do you think anybody's doing that? I would imagine someone's doing the math, right? What, but what I would expect, given the journey we've been on, is that I, I suspect that, as we talked about earlier, the, the idea that, boy, if you stop a process for a while, it's hard to start it back up. I think that for a lot of folks, the, the smaller reactors are going to look like more of a, an appropriate size step at first. Um, and in particular, I think of this less in terms of technology and more in terms of just the scale of investment on balance sheets. If I had a, a national utility, like say France does, where I have one company and the balance sheet to provide all of it, that might be different. But I think part of the challenge that we've got is making sure that the scale of investment is commensurate with the scale of the, uh, the, real, the assurances of the program. So I do think that the first movers will likely be on the smaller side. However, the other point I'll make, and this is not lost on me, is when you start thinking about getting to very high percentage of carbon-free in the mix, and a lot of nuclear is part of that, it's really nice to be able to move in gigawatt-sized chunks if you're trying to move fast. And so I don't know that I expect that to be the first move, but it would be pretty short-sighted to close down that option because it's going to look this world could look very different within a few years and having that in your pocket and being able to move faster could be really attractive. Yeah. I'll, I'll reiterate my point. You can respond or not, but the point is that there will be a demonstrated U S AP 1000 operating by the middle of next year. That process is completed. There are licenses already issued for four more. And there is a maybe somewhat damaged, but there is and a supply chain that has already been established to provide parts for those, especially since there are other places like Poland that are planning to build those those machines. It seems to me that that it's not a bad idea, particularly since both Duke and NextEra have large and growing customer bases to go ahead and get started on those plants before the workforce from Vogel is completely distributed somewhere else. Yeah, and I think there was a couple of interesting points there when I was going to make as well, which was uh, Poland. But I could really see being able to bootstrap a lot of the efforts because you're right, there is a supply chain, but it, let's be I think, clear in saying that the supply chain we wound up with was not the one we designed going into the AP1000 process. It had to be kind of reworked a couple of times on the fly. Mm-hmm. I think I think what will be interesting is as I look towards Poland in particular, um, which part of that work is being sourced domestically and how you build that strategically. Because I think that's going to be a real opportunity to think in terms of not just kind of filling in because the, the previous supplier didn't open on time or whatever that looked like, but instead of being able to say, I'm making a, a forward-leaning investment towards where the industry is going. And that's where I think you begin to, more confidence in what that looks like. Um, so yeah, I I do believe those are going to be valuable options. 
Um, it, it's not, as I look at the tea leaves right now, I don't know that I see that in the next few years, but I do think there's going to be a realization that you know, these technologies that are being, in this case, deployed abroad and running well at home are going to look very attractive. And there's no reason to think that that, that you know, you're going, that there will be, certainly be conditions where those are going to be the right kind of approach. The challenge is, I think, trying to find places where I need to think in terms of two, two to three gigawatts at a chunk. And I think that's where I need to do a little bit more of uh, the, the scale of demand growth needs to match the scale of capacity expansion in the same spot. And part of where I think this becomes really interesting is as I look towards other sectors of the economy where nuclear has not traditionally played directly, things like industrial applications um, and the transportation sector with electrification. The way I have come to understand the growth of electricity use in the United States might begin to look quite different. And I might be on a much more aggressive expansion profile than I currently see looking just at how the power sector itself has been growing relative to the economy. Yeah, I agree. Knowing a little bit about South Florida uh, and South slash North Carolina, I can say that, that those areas have a a rapidly growing population <laughs> and particularly in South Florida, there's going to be an awful lot of EVs being uh, charged at some point. I, I'm going to continue being this drum, whether mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure the NEI member, of course, next year is not even NEI member anymore. So uh, th- that no, doesn't but, really count. But. <laughs> but but Westinghouse is, and so is Duke. And, you know, so I, I think that, you know, as I look at the journey we've been on for the AP 1000 in the United States, I mean, it's taken longer than we wanted, but I don't want to look past the fact that it's a remarkable accomplishment that we're mm-hmm. uh, on the verge of seeing. And, the technology is fantastic. Uh, I think it's just trying to find, to my mind, the right combination of timing, the scale of investment, and the scale of demand uh, increment that needs to be added. But I, it, it's not hard, as you're saying, it's not hard to imagine conditions over the next decade or so where those begin to line up a lot more in terms of thinking of thousands of megawatts instead of hundreds of megawatts. Yeah. My view is that there's the, the best day to start those projects is January 1st. 2025. Um, as we look at the statute, so it has to go into operation after that point in time, which means that roughly anybody else who wants to move faster has a good incentive to do so. There's no reason to wait on the nuclear side. I don't think any nuclear plant's going to be starting today and operating before 2025. No, yeah. So And I think part of the opportunity here is that, um, that you know that, that this tax credits are written in a way that creates a longer horizon for their uh, staying on the books than would have reasonably, previously been expected, but also there's no reason to wait. Um, and so part part of the evangelical part of my job these days is trying to uh, convey to folks just what the opportunity looks like here and and why it is that we need to um, really begin to, to redo the math because I think that a lot of folks had gotten to the idea they were comfortable with maybe where they thought the economics of nuclear were. And that was a later decision because you needed things to change. Uh, Things just changed. And um, part of what I want to, I'm hoping we'll see is a reassessment of what the economics looks like, what what, what the economic opportunity for nuclear is, and also a better set of tools to understand what it's going to take to provide reliable carbon-free power at an affordable price. Because part of the challenge that I've run into over the years is even as you know, companies have sat down to do some of the analysis, they don't always have 
the kinds of modeling tools to understand just how to think about what happens when I have lots of wind and lots of solar and variable weather conditions. Mm -hmm. And and we're now seeing better modeling tools come in. And that's where you really begin to see that you need something like nuclear. And it could be something else too. I mean, if you know, natural gas with carbon capture gets there, that, that could work. If you invent a long-term battery, that can get there too. There's still a competition here, but it's a competition for something that nuclear is well positioned to provide. And that's where I think we need to you know, find a way to, to, to reboot the, the, the intuitions people have had about the role of nuclear. It's coming along slowly, I think, in the political sense. But especially in the financial sector, I think we have opportunities to catch up in a hurry. And that's where I think this conversation is more than about just creating the, the policy environment now. It's also about creating the, the economic appreciation in the private sector that um, I think has been lagging a little bit. Yeah, the, the, the notion of redoing the math is very important. An awful lot of people have done the spreadsheets two or three years ago and haven't updated them. So it's time to recognize that the inputs, the assumptions, the, uh, the competition has all changed. And it's time to redo that math and say, hmm, let's take a new look. And some of the advanced reactors are pretty in- intriguing. What, what are some of the feelings, conversations, uh, feedback you're getting from your members? Have you done some surveys on how, how do, what do they feel about these SMRs? Are they going to start building them in, in, in significant numbers? So it's interesting because about this time last year, we realized we were having a lot of one-on-one conversations with our members who were saying that they were really interested in advanced nuclear as part of their future, but we hadn't actually found a way to get our arms around just how much we're talking about. So we, we put together a survey late last year of our members. These are just the ones that already own and operate nuclear plants. And we essentially asked them, okay, if these advanced reactors come in at about the economic targets that they're talking about, price targets, what does your modeling say you're going to need to, to add to your system going forward? We, we you know, added all that up and it worked out to be about 90 gigawatts of new nuclear. By comparison, the current fleet is about 90 gigawatts of current of operating nuclear. It's about to double the fleet. Uh, and this was with the presumption that just about all of that operating nuclear was going to stay in operation. This wasn't replacement, this was addition. If I think about that, our members who own operate nuclear plants are just a, a portion of the industry. If you begin to think more broadly and even look at the ones who are furthest along in developing new nuclear, folks like UAMPS, uh, folks like Pacific Corp, they don't have new nuclear, new nuclear in their system, but they're looking at new. So if you think about that, it's not hard to look at a system where I'm thinking of not 90 gigawatts, but much more than that, maybe even a couple hundred. And this gave this kind of a, a moment of pause because you begin to realize that if I'm thinking in terms of, say, small modular reactors, take a notion of one of 300 megawatts or so, 90 gigawatts at 300 megawatts each, that's like 900 units. That's a lot. Um, that's a lot more than we've thought about in terms of what it takes to scale the uh, regulatory process, what it means to construct new nuclear means a lot more numbers of things. There's a lot of reason to think there's a good approach there, but it does put into a bit of stark relief what needs to begin to happen between where we are today and where we need to go. I'll point out that this is all before Russia invaded Ukraine and natural gas prices went to the roof and before the Inflation Reduction Act made nuclear look cheaper. 
I imagine if we were to redo that analysis, it would only be higher. And so this begins to really put a, in our mind, a spotlight on, okay, what is it going to take to create a, an industry, a regulatory environment that is ready to move at that scale with those numbers as we look into the 2030s to get going it's at, at, the, at full, full speed. And that's been a, an opportunity in realizing that in order to realize the opportunity, there's some challenges we got to work through too. Has the NEI considered issuing the same uh, survey to a larger portion of the electric industry, not just those who own and operate existing plants? Because as you said, the ones that are actually moving right now are not in the base of those who own and operate existing plants. I, I don't know if we've thought about it in that context. Um, I, I know that as we think about how the, the energy landscape has changed, we appreciate this probably uh, that what I'm saying is already stale and probably a little bit conservative. But I think even from our point of view, even with that data point and as limiting as that might be, that still implies a pretty dramatic need for a discontinuous change of how we've been pursuing nuclear today. It's not ones and twos. It's dozens and hundreds. And you know, even if it turns out I'm off by a factor of two in what that estimate looks like, it still sort of points to the need that I need to you know, create a pathway towards thinking at a scale that has just been beyond what we've had to do in the past. Let's just take something similar. So I mentioned like 300 SMRs. Um, no, more than that. If I think about the total number of construction permits that have been awarded by first the AEC and now the NRC over the entire history of the U.S. nuclear industry, I haven't done the math. I'm going to guess it's probably something on the order of 150-ish over a 60, 70-year time horizon. And I'm talking about well more than that in an awfully short period of time. So we know that the way we've done things over the entire long-term history of the industry is not going to be sufficient to what it's going to be needed to create that kind of world. And to your point, you know, that as I think about just where the current thinking is, you know, it's only going to make it more dramatic. And so you know, this is not just about the NRC, it's, it's broader than that. But that's how we need to be thinking in terms of the scale of what could be coming and how we can position ourselves to be ready to actually be able to you know, begin creating that kind of discontinuous change that we're going to need. How are we making the case to uh, Congress that the current method of funding the NRC is not adequately supplying them the resources needed to look ahead and to be ready for the kinds of changes you're talking about. Right now, most of the NRC funding gets get, comes from the operating plants, and the owners of the operating plants have no real interest in funding the NRC to do work other than do the regulating of their plants. We've certainly seen this already as these advanced designs have come to the NRC. So it's one thing to think about the challenge of taking a gigawatt scale reactor and instead thinking of a in terms of tens or a couple hundred megawatts. How does that change the understanding of the safety requirements and what needs to, to, to uh, be assured to meet the safety needs of uh, as per their mandate? It, that's been itself a bit of a challenge, but it's way harder when you begin to think about, well, what happens if it's not a light water reactor? What if it's not 
water as a coolant? What if it's a different kind of fuel form than uranium oxide at 5%? That you know, trying to create the institutional knowledge at the NRC for what these technologies might mean and how to understand them and evaluate them, that takes time and resources. And those resources have to come from someplace. And I, I don't think we've really broken the code yet on what it's going to take to create a, you know, not just a funding model, but an overall way to manage both the, the institutional understanding of the technologies themselves while at the same time, not trying to create a um, an NRC that's twice the size it needs to be because you know we, ha- we think this is going to happen sometime in the distant future. So it is a difficult balancing act. We appreciate that um, the answer here probably isn't to go hire 2,000 engineers and then train them to do things later. But at the same time, we know that workforce challenges are going to be, are already hard and going to get worse. And so um, this is going to be a, a pretty careful journey of, trying to, uh, to calibrate what's coming and how to prepare for it in a timely enough manner that, that you're not just caught behind the curve. And that's what I think the real challenge that both the, uh, the NRC leadership has, the industry messaging has to understand, and also especially importantly, the role of Congress in creating the expectation for what needs to happen and how those resources should be apportioned. Yeah, it's probably not time to hire a bunch of extra regulators but it's certainly time to provide the resources to hire a group of really smart people to redesign the processes so that when you do hire the new regulators, they have something better to work from. There's an awful lot of uh, excess detritus that has been laid upon the process over the last 50 years. And that process is going to have to look very different in the future. And I think, Well, I think that's easy to say, trying to figure out how to get from where we are now to what that needs to look like. That's not an obvious journey, at least not to me. Uh, maybe to those who are closer to that world, they, they, they see a more straightforward line of sight. But I need to be thinking in terms of you know, being able to approve the designs for understanding of the technology itself and then mapping that onto actual deployments in a way that uh, is much more timely and takes advantage of lessons learned in a way that we just have not been able to demonstrate. And you could argue Part 52 was designed to create this kind of framework, and we just haven't ever gotten to the point of being able to get to the, uh, the second followers through nth, nth of a kind. But it's going to have to look different when I think in terms of advanced reactors, small reactors that are trying to work on the economies of replication as opposed to the economies of scale. And that's where the industry is going, at least in the medium term, as we discussed earlier. So how the regulatory environment adapts to embrace that. And I think you know the idea of these designs are being put forward and those sizes are being put forward precisely because of the safety case that they provide ought to provide a, a path forward. But it's going to be, I think, a, a, a challenging you know, set of conversations along the way as we begin to figure out what what has to happen here. Well, there is some provision. There were some smart people who wrote the regulations to begin with. There's a whole section on how do you uh, license a manufacturing uh, process uh, so that you can you can actually do your inspections in the factory setting and and, uh, replicate things. It's not a process that's really been uh, exercised. Right. So that's a, that's a problem. It, it is it is an issue that, that I think we need to be working on. How do you how do we properly resource the NRC 
to do what it's really supposed to do, which is to protect the interests of the American public and make sure that the public and the environment are safe, which leads me to say that it should be much more funded by tax money than by fees. The idea of user fees dates all the way back to David Stockman and the Reagan administration, which I think was a a time when nobody wanted to say the word taxes. It really is something that should be supported by, by taxpayers because we're the ones who get the benefit of both uh, safe and, and clean nuclear energy. For utilities, they don't get much benefit from it. Your regulated utilities don't get extra extra profit because it's nuclear compared to something else, especially in a day in a time when nobody charges anybody for for CO2. All right, Matt. So we've been talking for about 40, 45 minutes or so, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to sort of summarize uh, where you you see your organization going over the next few years. What kind of priorities do you think you're going to have to help enable uh, nuclear to continue supplying what it supplies today and to grow for the future? So you're talking to somebody who works in the policy world. So uh, as a result, um, policies tend to be what I look at first, you know, hammer, nail, all that stuff. So we certainly have the remarkable step forward of the Inflation Reduction Act and even some of the the opportunities from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act to the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. A lot of the challenge now is in the the immediate window to make sure that those actually get implemented in a way that they can be used in the way they were intended. So a lot of that is trying to help the Internal Revenue Service understand the nuclear industry and understand that as they um, create the, the guidance that's going to actually be what companies look at to understand what taxation policies are going to mean, that that reflects what nuclear is going to bring. So we have some immediate challenges to ensure that as we now focus on uh, the you know, making these really useful, that we get that right. And that's going to be part of the, the immediate challenge. But beyond that, though, we need to be setting up for what this opportunity looks like and how to get ahead of it. We talked about the NRC and what that's going to need to look like. But it's more than that. You know, we're going to need to see yeah, how we build the workforce of the future. There's going to be a lot of people and a lot of skills necessary to build out nuclear at this scale and operate it. And this is more than just having nuclear engineers. Those are important. Don't get me wrong. But even people who work with the mechanical engineers, people who uh, are the building trades and the um, operations of of plants as well, those skills need to come through and have a home for uh, building long-term careers in the industry. This is part of the reason why the coal to nuclear story is so compelling is I actually have a skilled workforce there that I can draw on to put out electricity from a power plant to the grid, to move steam around, move water around uh, in a safe and reliable manner. But we need to build beyond that too. And so that's going to be one of the challenges. One that I think about is how we create this longer term supply chain. How do you deal with a chicken and egg problem of realizing that I'm going to need to see capital investment in some of these supply chain uh, capabilities, but I need to make sure that happens before the, the order comes in the door. However, I can't be you know, putting billions of dollars at risk in plants that might not get used. And so how do we tap into the, the, the capital markets and the risk allocation that Wall Street's good at, um, but they've not been looking at what it takes to build out this part of the economy in this industry? 
And so expanding the opportunity for that kind of large scale capital mobilization to build the infrastructure and then the plants themselves. And you know, seeing that whole journey be folded more into building uh, sustainable economies and the taxonomies that have been trying to help direct um, you know, sustainable funding into these uh, channels is a, is a step two. And so what I'm saying is it's going to take expanding our focus beyond just the the government part and the regulator. Those are important. We're not stopping there. But expanding out into the private sector more broadly to bring to, to bear both the people and the, the resources, the funding necessary to really create this, this path forward. And I think that's going to be um, quite a journey over the next five, 10 years, and it should be fun. Yeah, one of the, the challenges that we have is having been a supplier, uh, a very modest little supplier in a, mm -hmm. in a certain industry, it's very difficult to invest in equipment if you don't have uh, at least a promise that somebody's going to buy the equipment if you can supply it. You know, you've got to have that, that ability to place orders and in some cases put down deposits that allow the supplier to make the investments necessary uh, in their equipment. And I think many people don't understand that factories that produce important widgets uh, aren't as expensive as a complete power plant. You know, you can really get your, your factory production set up for a lot less than you can building the complete power plant. But you have to be ready to place orders. And a lot of people talk about the problem with, uh, with human capital, but I can pretty much guarantee you that if there's jobs, the people will come. But the people aren't going to go and, and spend the money on training themselves if they don't see a job opportunity. Uh, you know, it's one of the, 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 especially these days when people have to borrow a lot of money to go to college. Yeah. And especially it's, to that point too, it's also being able to see that there is an opportunity to go after. And so, you know, bringing that, that part of the story to people, you know, still in their education years and, understanding that there is something exciting and promising and long-term. It's not a fleeting moment. It's a really, a, a really interesting place to, to you know, put yourself and have opportunities going forward. You know, getting that story out in a way that was maybe a lot easier in the 1950s when you had Walt Disney putting out um, little shorts uh, all the time and things like that. Whereas it's a much, it's a different environment now and we have to figure out how to tap into that. And, um, yeah, I think that you're right, that when, give, when people understand the opportunity, they'll, they don't need a whole lot of motivation to go after it. But we have to make sure that we're not waiting on them to get through junior high when we need them right now. And so, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, there is this kind of how we accelerate this and bring this to the future. And it's in that regard, it's not that different than your story of, of what it takes to, to get a supplier up and running, of having enough certainty that this is a pathway that I can invest in, whether it's myself or the capital equipment. And then making sure that that gets realized, and and that's part of where I think the some of the challenge is going to be in the in the short term here. And so, as you said, we need to get going on it. Yep, it's it, time to start. Of course, we we all have been starting, and this is one of those things where I hope that people uh, call us an overnight success and 
and, and maybe they'll forget about the 30 years worth of <laughs> groundwork laying we've been doing. So, so that's, that's that, all right. <laughs> on that point, I'll leave with this thought. So, you know, as we've watched the Inflation Reduction Act come into law, I've been thinking a lot about how we got here. And in particular, because if you remember, part of the reason we focused on the states to keep plants in operation was I couldn't get Washington interested in the problem. And it occurred to me that I was reflecting on this journey. I was reminded of a line from uh, Ernst Hemingway of when he was asked about how he became bankrupt. And then said, well, two ways, uh, gradually, then suddenly. And I think that's kind of what's happened here, too. That, um, how do we get Congress engaged on this issue? Well, gradually and then, then suddenly. But the gradual part wasn't just waiting. It was a long journey of putting yourself in position, having the conversations, explaining the role of nuclear, why it was important to meeting these national goals. And that took a while. But once it happened, it came quickly. And I think that that's probably not a bad model for how to think about what it's going to take to hit the opportunity where you can actually see multiple reactors come online in the same year. It's going to feel shocking when it happens, but it's not going to be because we got lucky. It's because a lot of long-term work had to go into making the positions possible. And so I hope we can get ahead of that now, be ready for that as, and to be called, as you said, the overnight success. With that, I think that we'll say goodbye. Thanks a lot, Matt. And I just for the reminder for the audience, I've been talking to Matt Crozat from the Nuclear Energy Institute. And Matt, can you remind us what your exact position title is? I am the Executive Director for Strategy and Policy Development. All right. Terrific. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rod. And this episode of The Atomic Show was brought to you by Nucleation Capital. We're working hard to select ventures with extraordinary promise of success. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. We're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions which typically allocate to venture capital. We believe regular investors should have access to advanced nuclear for their own portfolios. So we allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. There's a way, a way, such a better way. Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way. Ooh, there's a way. Such a better way today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way.